This audio recording is presented by City Church Orlando. I've often uh, said to folks that this is a story of City Church, that in 2007, somewhere in there, we went from in utero um, to infancy, that in 2008, uh, it was the year of crawling, that we sort of got up and running uh, as a church, as God was planting us. I feel like 2009 was the year of walking. Um, we, I think, are at this point walking as a body uh, uh, compared to what we hope and dream to do um, in God's timing. I think 2010, um, which is where we're at now, if you've lost track, um, is the year of a toddler running downhill. Um, I've got a feeling we will get running in some ways. I think we'll have a lot of fun and squeal with, del- with delight. And I think at some points we'll fall down, get bloody, and cry. Uh, I have a feeling that this is going to be the year of the running toddler uh, downhill. For five weeks at the beginning of 2010 here, I want to do a sermon series on what we value. Um, at the very beginning of City Church back in January of 2007, I did a DNA series where I just talked about what is it that we want to be the marks of this church. And if they're not the marks of this church, what are we going to repent towards and ask God to do in our midst? So part of this, um, these five sermons, uh, part of them will be rather evident. It'll be right in front of you. Hopefully you'll see some fruit of what I'm talking about. Other parts are going to just be in theory, in dream, uh, in prayer. And so with that being said, we'll just move right into the first value, and that is that we value the Word. Uh, This morning's sermon is on valuing the Word of God, valuing Scripture, uh, valuing uh, the Bible. Um, Maybe you've noticed this in your time here at City Worship. Um, We try and put Scripture in and through all of the liturgy. And while we appreciate uh, man's and, and woman's thoughts on things, and we'll often read and pray those things, we try and give an emphasis to Scripture. Even in the worship folder you have in front of you, we delineate and differentiate between God's Word and our words by labeling things like the reading of the Word or the words of institution or the call to worship. Anytime we're using Scripture, we put the title V in front of it to, to let us know that it's different from when men and women uh, who are finite creatures uh, speak. Maybe um, you've noticed in the sermons um, that we just put a real emphasis on walking through books of the Bible. Ironically, I'm now violating that principle that we hold dear with this five-week sermon series. Not that it's wrong. I just think it's probably less effective. Um, But we just value going through verse by verse word by word, chapter by chapter, just going through books of the Bible. If you're in one of our home groups, we call them city groups. Um, If your group is being led as we train the leaders to lead it, um, three out of every four times you meet, you're devouring scripture together. You're looking at a text as if it's a 3D statue in front of you and calling out your understanding by God's spirit on that text and better understanding who he is and what he has done uh, by living uh, in community. Uh, While on the topic of CBR and the daily reading, I I have a very specific and a very prayerful goal for this morning's sermon. I want you to know I've been praying pretty fervently for two weeks that this goal would happen. I I want to encourage those of you who are reading daily, and to some extent, I want to help explain what you're experiencing. Secondly, my ultimate desire is for all of you to be participating in CBR today and tomorrow. This is the perfect time to start. We start over the New Testament in January of every year. If you start today, you can read Luke 1 this afternoon, Luke 2 tomorrow, and then there you are. You're right on track with the rest of us. It's my goal and my prayer to change 
all of our morning routines as we look at God's word and we try and value what he values. Uh, To go further, I've actually been praying that we would develop an addiction to the word of God. In the scripture text this morning, we're going to find out that angels lust over the word of God. They overly desire it. And God says that's a good thing. That I want us to get addicted to communing with God through his word every morning, surrendering to him and leaning into that day by his direction. I'm asking God to change what we value. I'm asking him to change and transform what we do. As a result of this morning, I want us to see that whatever we do when we get up, other than commune with God through him and his word, is a trinket compared to the treasure of the gospel. Please stand with me. Hopefully the prayer of illumination will be on the screen behind me. Let's pray together. Lord God, may your word be a lamp to our feet and a light to our path. Through Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen. The sermon text this morning comes from the book of Hebrews, the book of James, the book of 1 Peter. Hebrews chapter 4, verses 12 and 13. For the word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and of spirit, of joints and of marrow, and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. And no creature is hidden from his sight, but all are naked and exposed to the eyes of him to whom we must give account. From James chapter 1, verse 21, put away all filthiness and rampant wickedness and receive with meekness the implanted word, which is able to save your souls. And from 1 Peter 1, verses 10 to 12 and 23 to 25, concerning the salvation of your souls, the prophets who prophesied about the grace that was to be yours searched and inquired carefully inquiring what person or time the Spirit of Christ in them was indicating when he predicted the sufferings of Christ and the subsequent glories. It was revealed to them that they were serving not themselves but you in the things that have now been announced to you through those who preach the good news to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven, things into which angels long to look. You have been born again, not of perishable seed, but of imperishable, through the living and abiding word of God. For all flesh is like grass, and all its glory like the flower of grass. The grass withers and the flower falls, but the word of the Lord remains forever. And this word is the good news that was preached to you. This is God's word. Please be seated. I want to consider these passages in this way. At City Church, I desire for us to increasingly value the Word of God because it is the remedy of the deep, it is eternal yet present, it is subtle yet powerful, and it is our hero's story. First, the remedy of the deep. Think about it this way. Think about the all-too-often tragic story of cancer. I had a friend recently report the following about a loved one of theirs in a routine check. I mean, listen, I feel like I've heard this story a dozen times since becoming a pastor, maybe more 
In a routine checkup, a doctor discovered, if you will, signs of prostate cancer. A battery of preliminary tests were ordered, and when the friend went to see the doctor for the debriefing, the oncologist said that not only did they have prostate cancer, but the test revealed that they had cancer in their shoulder, dangerously close to the brain and to the lymph nodes. The doctor told them that while prostate cancer is serious, it's not as crucial or critical as dealing with the cancer in the shoulder. He told the friend that they would first go after what is ultimate, what is urgent, what is most important, what is most crucial, and then in time address what was secondary. We value the word of God because it deals with and heals in the realm of our deepest need. The scriptures are clear. In addition to our physical, material bodies, we also have an immaterial part. We as individuals are both physical and spiritual, material and immaterial. Jesus refers to these two aspects and speaks directly to it in Matthew. Listen to, verse, to chapter 10, verse 28. Do not fear those who kill the body, but cannot kill the soul. Rather, fear him who can destroy both soul and body in hell. The Bible uses several different terms to talk about um, this immaterial aspect of who we are. It uses the word soul, the word heart, the word spirit. You saw this in Hebrews chapter 4. The word of God pierces to the division of soul and spirit, of joints and of marrow, and discerns the thoughts and intentions of the heart. This immaterial part of us is the seat of our affections. It's the place where we find our motivations. It is the land of our imaginations. It is our intentions. The scriptures are clear that the core of our sin, the core of our rebellion, the core of our brokenness, the core of our woundedness is found in the depths of who we are. The scriptures are clear. Apart from Christ, we're dead and are dying a slow death spiritually. Every one of us, whether we're a believer or an unbeliever, we know that something is wrong with us. Or better said, every one of us knows that something is not right with us. Further, apart from the gospel, the older we get, the more cynical we become about our ability to redeem and to remedy what is wrong with us, the not rightness, if you will. We experience this not rightness physically. We experience it emotionally. We experience it relationally. We experience it socially. We experience it in the realm of nature. But listen very carefully. This is what I mean by the remedy of the deep. The Bible says that all of these realities that we experience on a daily basis stem from our deepest need, our deepest wound, our deepest rebellion. What is ultimately wrong with us at the level of our soul? Going back to our morning routine and my goal for this sermon, I believe our morning routine reveals what we think is wrong with us. Or said better, I think our morning routine tells us what we think, often subconsciously, what we think will make us right. But... We value the word of God because it is the remedy of the deep. Listen to James 1. The implanted word of God is able or powerful to save your soul. 1 Peter 1, concerning the salvation of your soul, your new birth through the living and active word of God. Here's the point. The word of God is able to save, deliver, remedy, and rescue, rescue us at our deepest point of need. And that's why we value it. 
Next, we value the word. And I desire for us to increasingly value it because it is eternal and yet present. First, eternal. Look at 1 Peter with me again if you have your insert. It says in verse 24 that men and their works are like grass and flowers. They pop up and fade away in time. But the word of God, number one, is imperishable, verse 23. It is undecaying, it is immortal, it is incorruptible. Number two, the word of God is living and abiding. The word abiding means endure or remain. Number three, the word of God, verse 25, compared to men and their works, the word of the Lord remains, same word as abiding, abides forever. The word of God is clear. The word of God existed in eternity past in the essence and being of God himself. The word of God will exist in eternity future. I mean, I think it's amazing as we read Ecclesiastes this week. We're reading what the faithful have read for thousands of years. I find that incredibly inspiring compared to what I like to read in its place. Go back to our morning routine. What will be obsolete 20 years from now? Fantasy football stats for today, obsolete. Email, obsolete. Annual reviews, the annual review for this year, obsolete. Annual giving records for this year, obsolete. Twitter, gone, like a typewriter. Facebook, iPhones, Blackberries, gone. What will still remain? What will be vibrant, applicable, a current part of the believer's life? The living and abiding word of God. Not only is the word of God eternal, but it's also actively and intimately present. The same word that Peter uses in in verse 23, living, is the same word the author of Hebrew uses. Hebrews 4, the word of God is living and active. (laughs) That word is the word in Greek, it's energes. It's where we get our word energy. It means that right now, present tense, the word of God is energying us. It is discerning us. It is piercing us. It is, if you will, all of us, present tense, are naked and exposed to the eyes of him to whom we must give an account. But what does that mean? <laughs> what does it mean that it's active, that it's alive, that it's working, that it's energying? I mean, I, I just have to give you a warning. I mean, this, um, it's, it's almost impossible to talk about this point um, if you're not a believer or if you're a believer that doesn't read their Bible very much. It's nearly impossible to talk about what does it mean that the Word of God is living and active until you've actually experienced the living and active Word of God. But what it means is this, that when we read the Bible, God moves right into the living room of our soul and begins to do business. And you can feel it. That when we study it, we often find that it has been studying us The scriptures, when read and when preached, penetrate right into the heart of the matter for the believer. It means that when you read it, whatever text you read, through the sovereignty of God, it is applying itself to your situation right then. To understand what scripture means by living and active, I'm going to give you a challenge. I'm going to tell you a story. First, I want to give you a friendly challenge a challenge from your pastor. For the next 30 days, get up 15 minutes earlier. Or if you get up early, don't do fantasy football right away. Don't do email right away. Don't do Facebook right away. Don't work out right away. Don't do whatever it is right away you like to do right away. Number two, wake up. See, getting up and waking up, those are different. Get up, 
wake up. I am allowing coffee. I'm allowing showers, whatever. This is part of the deal. Number three, sit down and pray this. God, I am here to meet with you, and I desire to commune with you. Please teach me. Please lead me. I confess pride and that I think I know what's best for me. I ask that you guard me from trying to be in control. I surrender to you. Please save me again this morning. Four, for 15 minutes, read the New Testament text of CBR. Read it slowly once. Read it quickly, multiple times. However you learn, however you process life, do that. Don't get stuck on what you don't understand. That's part of the deal. That was my whole week in Ecclesiastes. Don't get stuck on what you don't understand. Deuteronomy 29, 29 says very clearly, the secret things belong to the Lord our God, but the things that are revealed to us belong to us and to our children forever. So don't get stuck on what you don't understand and, married folks, don't get stuck on what you hope other people around you are learning that morning. It's also a violation of the challenge. Number five, take note. I humbly promise you and am willing to bet a beer or a steak or both that at the end of the month, if you surrender yourself to the word, if you come under the scriptures to let it outline you, if you let it search you, if you let it study you, at some point you will feel the living and active word of God as though it is reading you. Further, if you will continue in CBR, you will frequently find that that day's reading is incredibly applicable and current to your life and whatever specific things you're going through. I'm being very serious. I'm actually challenging you. I'll put the steak and the beer on the line. I'm okay with having 95 to me and five to you. I like my odds. The word will not come back void. It says it's living and active and that it accomplishes its purposes. When I was in seminary and when I began as a pastor, I felt like it was probably really important for me to read my Bible every day. I'm sad to say I did not have the habit of reading the Bible until I got to seminary, but I didn't really know where to start. I didn't know what to do. I just kind of fumbled around for a while. It's a massive book if you've ever looked at it. There's a lot going on in there. And so um, I I would just uh, kind of think about myself in the morning and I would think, you know, I wonder what's wrong with me today. What am I feeling? What am I thinking? And then I would try and think of a passage that might apply to who I was. And I would go to that passage and I would read it. Maybe one out of a hundred times I would experience what I'm trying to teach to you this morning as the living and active word of God. But I don't know what happened, but when I began to trust what believers have been doing for centuries, which is read through the Bible on a schedule, I began to see that the living and active word of God, it being in control of what I was going to read, began to make my times much more intimate, much more sweet, much more applicable. It was as if I took myself from over the word and came under it. Massive difference. So I want to tell you a story about it living and active in my life. If you're just now waking up, this has very little to do with what we're actually talking about. This is just an illustration. It's from Ecclesiastes 11. I woke up Monday morning very anxious, very, very stressed, more than normal. Uh, my, <laughs> I was very tightly strung. On my mind, immediately when I woke up, and I get up early, 
was all the things I was responsible for this week, this year, in my life. It was as if I was being bombarded. On my heart was a list of things that I didn't know how to do. A list of questions that I did not have an answer for. That unnerves me. It was a list of future scenarios I wasn't prepared for and a list of future scenarios I wasn't sure how to prepare for. This five value sermon series, how to hook up and operate the Wii my parents gave the kids for Christmas, how to build the entertainment center my parents gave the family for Christmas, the wedding ceremony and homily on Friday, how to love Trisha well today, let alone 20 years from now, Seriously, bombarded by these thoughts and questions, these places where I did not know what to do, how to love the kids well now, let alone five years from now when I have a teenager, how to be a pastor of this church plant, how to be a part of helping others get the chance to plant a church. My mind and my heart were feeling pressure. I was lacking oxygen. I was worried. I was hurried. This is the temptation. Skip CVR. I felt it. I thought about it. I looked at the entertainment center from Ikea and thought, man, I could get a head start. Just skip CVR. You have way too much to do. The even more tempting temptation was to skim through CVR. Check it off the list. Keep my Bible reading righteousness intact. But then after being religious, I could get to work. I could read the commentaries. I could send emails. I could start writing. I could make a list of things that I don't know what to do with, all before the kids ever wake up. The temptation is, is for us to feel as though we have to be living and active instead of the word being living and active. So I prayed the prayer of surrender I mentioned before. I read it directly from my journal, by the way. And I turned to Ecclesiastes 11 the Old Testament text for CBR. And by the way, I don't understand a lot of it. You want to know what chapter 11 said four times? Shortest chapter in all of Ecclesiastes, 10 verses. Four times, these words. You do not know. Four times, four different occasions. Not sure what they meant. Verse two, you do not know what disaster may happen. Verse 5a, you do not know the way the spirit comes to the bones in the womb of a woman with child. It's saying you have no idea how God physically knits a baby together in the womb of a child, and you have no idea how he puts a spirit or a soul or a heart into that child. You got no idea. You do not know the work of God who makes everything. And lastly, in the morning sow your seed, and at evening withhold not your hand. I'm not sure what that means. For because... You do not know which will prosper, this or that, or whether both alike will be good. Further, the underlying truth of Ecclesiastes is this. God knows. He makes everything and he understands everything. He is the creator, the sustainer, and the redeemer of all things, and I am not. Do you see what the living and active word of God was communicating to me? Do you see what Jesus, through his spirit, was saying to me through the words written thousands of years ago? Through a Bible eight years old and a text already underlined but not remembered? You don't know. And Jesus is saying, I know that you don't know. I already knew that. Just take a breath. 
Let go. Trust. Jesus says, I'm going to build my church. I'm going to take care of your children. You be faithful. You just do what I say. You value what I value. You pray what I tell you to pray. Just tell people about me again. Jesus said, I know that you don't know, and I'm okay with it. Are you? And I had to repent and say, no, I'm not okay with it. And yes, I want to be okay with it. Now listen, that's not every day. Some days, it's just 15 minutes of reading. No real earth-shattering event to speak of. But more days since I started reading through the Bible and CBR, more days it's as if I'm being read. It's as if I'm being studied. It's as if I'm being exposed. It's as if I'm being saved. As we go from eternal yet present to subtle yet powerful, I want you to make note at how these two points drive home the need for daily Bible reading in a very real sense, not in every sense, but in a very real sense, in Bible reading. Yesterday is too early and tomorrow is too late. Remember, I've been fervently praying for two weeks that this sermon would change what we value and what we do so that we might be saved. Look again at James 1.21, subtle yet powerful. James 1.21, put away all filthiness and rampant wickedness. The New Testament writers have this habit of speaking of believers as having two needs. We, we need to put away the old man, the old character, the old deeds, the old motivations. And Paul, most famously in Colossians 3, says to put on uh, the new self as if it's an article of clothing. And James tells us in James chapter 1 how to put on the new self. Listen, if you're a dad, this might be the best motivation I have for you to pick up the Bible and start reading it every day. When you and I begin to see how our sins affect and affect our wives and children, this right here should drive us to the word. And receive with meekness the implanted word, which is able to save your soul. Do you see that? He's saying, put away all the selfishness of the old man and put on all the selflessness of Christ. And this is how you do it. Receive with meekness the implanted word of God. It's exactly what Paul said in Colossians 3. He's telling you everything he wants you to put on, compassion, mercy, kindness. And he says, let the word of Christ dwell in you richly. That's how it happens. So first, it's subtle. Look at the word pictures for the word in these passages. First Peter, the imperishable seed. James, the implanted Word. Think about how subtle this is. How do you sow a seed or how do you plant most seeds? A pickaxe? A bulldozer? A jackhammer? No. You sprinkle the ground with a little water. You poke at it. You see how it's doing. You wait for it to be ready to receive and then you, you use a sharp object. You make a subtle little incision and deposit the seed. It's almost unnoticeable. To the naked eye, nothing has happened. This is the force of the double-edged sword in Hebrews. It's a double-edged dagger. It's it's literally in the Greek, a double-edged dagger. It's not a hammer that can rip flesh apart. The word does not generally work on us like a hammer ripping us apart. It is not a single-edged sword that will slice something off by sheer force. 
It's a double-edged blade with a very sharp point and two sharp blades which can precisely and subtly, like a surgeon, move in and do its business. Once the seed is planted, the power is tapped and released. The barren ground could one day be a forest. Regarding powerful, let's follow the biblical illusion farther. James 1 says the seed is able to save our souls. Abel is dunamite, which is where we get our word for dynamite. I almost called this point um, subtle dynamite. But dynamite happens too fast for what the word teaches us about the word of God. How many sidewalks have we seen altered by a plant? Think about that. A massive slab of concrete can be lifted up and broken apart, and it all starts with an acorn. And the DNA of an acorn is a glorious future, Think about this. What happens? Think about the subtlety and the power of God's word. What happens when you plant something that initially is more impressive than a seed? You you do it this afternoon. Plant some glass. Plant some stone. Put some concrete in the ground. Fertilize it. Water it. Protect it. Allow sun to shine upon it. What's going to happen? Nothing. The glass or the stone has no botanical or biological potential at all. But inside the seed is the organic power of life and growth. Spurgeon was maybe one of the greatest preachers to ever live. A great Baptist preacher always said that in the cup of the acorn is an ocean of trees. The cup is that part that we think is the top and how it hangs from the tree. And sometimes the acorn will fall just as the acorn, but sometimes the cup is on it. And he said that sitting in the cup of the acorn is an ocean of trees. Because that one acorn can become one oak tree, and that one oak tree can become thousands of oak trees, and those thousands of oak trees can become an ocean of trees. This is how the word saves. This is how it transforms. This is why James says to us, and this is why I think it means daily, receive the gen- with gentleness the implanted word. Receive with meekness. Receive with humility the implanted word. Finally, this morning, we value the word because it's our hero's story. Now, this is crucial to see. I want to draw it out for you just a little bit. How do we get to the place with city Bible reading? We're reading the Old Testament and the New Testament. How do we get to the place where we are like the angels in 1 Peter 1, longing to look at it? I mean, the word is the same word Jesus says in Matthew 5, that if you look lustingly, uh, lustfully at a woman, uh, you've committed adultery with her. The Bible will use this word for covet if you're looking for something bad or something good that you want to be ultimate. And it will use this word for worship or desire. It says in 1 Timothy, if you desire to be an elder, you aspire to a good thing. So the word can mean something really good or something really bad. How do we get to the place where we're addicted to the word of God and can't wait to get up and commune with him through it? It says the angels long to look. It doesn't just mean look. It means to stoop and look. It means to stop and bend over. How do we join in with David in Psalm 119 and say we delight in the word? We have to see the entire Bible. This is so crucial. This is so crucial for believer and unbeliever alike. We have to see the entire Bible as one story. That the entire Bible, Old Testament included, has one hero. It's not us. It's Jesus. Unless you see that the entire Bible is about Jesus, then it won't be a delight. It'll be a crushing weight. 
until we see that the entire Bible has one hero and it is our Savior, it will not be a love affair, but a task that will produce pride in us if we're doing well or despair in us if we're doing poorly. Until we see this part, the Bible will not have power to change us. But once we see the Bible as one story with one hero, it will become a transforming, joy-inflicting power as we read it over time. Listen, religion, as opposed to the gospel, religion looks at city Bible reading this way. I give God a good record based on all the instructions in the Bible, and then he has to bless me. The gospel looks at city Bible reading this way. I'm a sinner. I have not read, and I have not obeyed. And when I do read, I read it so that I can control God and appease him. And while a sinner, the gospel says this, God blesses me by sheer grace and unmerited favor. And then, only then, but absolutely then, I go to the instructions of the Bible, desiring to do what he tells me to do. Because I'm grateful for what he has already done. This is the point of 1 Peter 1, 10 through 12. It's... Grammatically, it's very difficult. I was even tripping over it this morning trying to read it to you. But what Peter is saying is this, that the Old Testament prophets were serving us because all that the Old Testament prophets talked about is ultimately preached to us now in the gospel. And Peter says this crazy thing. He says this outlandish thing. He says this crazy, this, it's, just, it's over the top what he says about the entire Bible being about Jesus unless you go and read what Jesus says about himself in the gospels. It says, Abraham looked forward to my day. Moses looked forward to my day. In Luke 24, he couldn't say it more explicitly. He says that all of the Old Testament is about him. Listen to all the categories he includes in Luke 24. The prophets, well, I get that part. It's kind of looking into the future. The law and the poets. Let me give you a rather long quote from a pastor named Tim Keller, who is a pastor in New York City, fortunately in our denomination, but also, fortunately, a man that impacts a lot of churches around the world. Um, I, I normally listen, when we're going through Mark, I, I have about 10 commentaries, and I have men and women that I read and listen to, but for this particular sermon, um, I kind of just focused in on uh, one or two thinkers, and one of them is Keller, so I probably ought to just at least uh, mention the fact that anything that's true about this sermon probably came from his thoughts, and anything that's not true was probably something I thought I would add, because he doesn't understand very well. And um, he has a sermon, if you're confused, uh, from 2001 on 1 Peter. It's called Born of the Gospel. Um, it's absolutely fantastic. I would recommend, in fact, that you uh, listen to that and fix anything I said uh, by it. But I want to give you um, this long quote, and we will be done, from his First uh, Peter sermon in 2001. It's about Jesus being the hero of the story. You say, I can't understand this. I, I can understand that some places in the prophets are about Jesus, but how could the law be about Jesus? How could every part be about Jesus? Though the Bible is full of stories, tons of stories, David, Ruth, Jonah, Abel, every story is really telling one story. You must see that every story has Jesus as the ultimate hero. Jesus is the true and better Adam who also faced a test in the garden, but he didn't fail it and drag us down, but succeeded and brought us up. Jesus is the true and better Abel, 
the innocent slain one whose blood cries out, but not for condemnation like Abel's, but for grace and acquittal like Jesus. Jesus is the true and better um, uh, Isaac, whose father didn't just raise the dagger over him, but brought it down so it didn't have to come down on us. Jesus is the true and better Joseph who stands at the right hand of the throne and forgives and saves the ones who betrayed him. Jesus is the true and better David who fought the giant, whose victory is imputed to us even though we didn't do a thing. Jesus is the real rock of Moses who was struck with the rod of justice and brings us water in the desert. Jesus is the real sacrifice to whom all sacrifices point. He's the real temple to whom the temple points. Every prophet, every priest, every king. He's the true and better Jonah who went into the belly of the earth to save us. Jesus is the true Job, the innocent sufferer who in the end intercedes for his people, for his friends who are so stupid during the entire time. He's the real Esther. Esther risked losing the palace and says, if I perish, I perish while saving my people. Jesus Christ lost the ultimate palace who said, when I perish, I perish in order to save my people. Every person and everything points to Jesus. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, I have only one thing left to do, and that is to ask you to bring us into your word with grateful hearts. Lord, I know that, you're, that when we look at history, when we think about when your church has flourished at an astonishing, astonishing rate, when we think about your church increasing in a land and not decreasing like in the United States, when we think about renewal movements and revival movements that bring amazing change to a city so that people's lives are concretely better, when we read about those events in history, we know that certain things are happening. And number one at the top of every one of those lists is that the people devour the word and worship you in it. I pray that you would give us hearts to know that we don't know, to know that you know, to believe that you're enough for us. Listen, even in this, we must find our righteousness in Christ. I mean, the scripture is very clear. It says, meditate on the law day and night. It says, blessed is the man who feeds on the word of God constantly. That's more than what we've done. It also says, not only is the law of God and his story and his gospel to be on our hearts all the time, it says that anytime you're around children, whether they're yours biologically or they're yours covenantally, it says, wherever you go with those children, be talking about God's word with them and helping them see how it fits into every aspect of their life. Listen to Deuteronomy chapter six. And these words that I command you today shall be on your heart. You shall teach them diligently to your children and shall talk of them when you sit in your house, when you walk by the way, when you lie down, when you rise. You shall bind them as a sign on your hand and they shall be as frontlets between your eyes. You shall write them on the doorposts of your house and on your gates. What do we do? We haven't treasured God's word day and night. We haven't taught his promises to our children, whether biologically or covenantally. We haven't. We can't. We won't. What are we to do? Even here, the Bible says, find your righteousness in Christ. That the word became flesh and dwelt among us. 
and he grew in wisdom and in stature. We see Jesus as a 12-year-old boy in the temple asking questions about the law and amazing the men who have given their lives to it by his understanding. The point is not that he was God. He stripped himself of a lot to become a God-man. The point is that he gave his life to the studying and the acquiring of and the retaining of the scriptures. That when we see him tempted in Matthew 4 and Luke 4, how does he respond to temptation? The living and active word of God shows up and leads him through scripture, through the temptation. The word became flesh and dwelt among us full of grace and truth. And the word goes to the cross to have his flesh ripped apart so that we can be knit together. Even our city Bible reading is by faith. Even our worship is by faith. Everything we do is in and through Jesus. That's what communion is about. It's a proclamation of his life, his righteous record for us, and his death bearing the judgment for our sin on the cross.